Why don't we pray? Father, we ask you to open your word to us and encourage us, Father, to pray and help us understand the whole dynamic of prayer in our lives, looking at Jesus' prayers and we pray pray that we uh, would find so much treasure in the passages that we look at today and that we'll be inspired and that we'll love you more, that we'll grow in our understanding of the spiritual life and that we'll be motivated to pray um, and motivated about the fact that you're our Father and you love us and you draw near to us. Um, And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, last week we uh, looked at Mark 11, 12 to 25, the fig tree cursed. And thanks for your comments and your questions. Uh, And I've been thinking a lot recently about the passages on prayer in Mark's Gospel. And we looked at one last week, 22 to 25 of, of Mark 11. So I wanted to pause this week and just talk about prayer more and look at the prayers of Jesus in Mark's Gospel and then how do we learn from the prayers of Jesus. Prayer is so important in our discipleship to Jesus and I didn't want to do a series on Mark's Gospel without looking uh, at prayer full on and really spending some great time digging into uh, the theme of prayer in Mark's Gospel. So I really want to look at Jesus' prayers in Mark's Gospel, um, how he experiences intimacy with his father and therefore gains strength and clarity and conviction to obey his father's will. It's through prayer that Jesus aligns himself with the will of his father and is strengthened and empowered to enact that will and to discern that will. And it's just this rich, incredible, beautiful thing that we see between Jesus and his father as Jesus prays. And that's a great model for our praying, so I want to dig, dig into that for us. Uh, well, firstly, Jesus praying, and then we'll look at what does this mean for us. Mark doesn't list many examples of Jesus praying in Mark's Gospel, not as many as in the other Gospels, particularly Luke's Gospel has lots of examples of Jesus praying. But Mark does give us four examples at crucial points in the story. In the wilderness at the end of chapter 1, on a mountain uh, at the end of chapter 6, in the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, the passage we just read, and then finally on the cross. So four key prayers of Jesus at four key moments. The wilderness, the mountain, the garden and the cross. Firstly, in the wilderness, chapter 1, verses 35 to 39, and I hope you can kind of follow along in the books as we look at these. In the wilderness, the biblical, in the biblical understanding, the wilderness is the place of privileged encounter with God, as well as the place of testing. Privileged encounter with God, as well as the place of testing. And we see that with Israel in the wilderness under Moses. They met with God in the wilderness, but they were also tested in the wilderness. Mark says in verse 35 of chapter 1, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What's happening here? Jesus' early morning prayer comes at the end of a 24-hour 
period of ministry in Capernaum, which was his home base at that time. On the previous day, Jesus had taught in the synagogue. He'd uh, cast out an impure spirit in the synagogue. And then later he had healed Simon's mother-in-law. And after sunset, he cured many who were sick and who were demon-possessed. And then early next morning, while it's still dark, he heads for a solitary place to pray. And in the Greek, it's literally a wilderness place. Now, this has puzzled scholars because Capernaum is in a cultivated area. Why is this called a wilderness place? Mark's reference to wilderness place here highlights that this is a time of testing for Jesus. Just as he was tested in the wilderness back in chapter 1, 12 to 13, where he confronted Satan. We're meant to see that this testing continues here in chapter 1, verse 35. So what is the nature of Jesus' testing in this instance? Verse 36 gives us a hint. Simon and the other disciples pursue and track down Jesus. And the verb is hostile in in its vibe. Uh, This verb, pursue Jesus, uh, is the same word that's used to describe Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites as they escaped from Egypt. The disciples are in pursuit of Jesus. They're tracking him down and they have their own agenda, uh, which is not following Jesus, but they have their own agenda. And they say to him, everyone's looking for you. The implication is, hey, the success you've had in Capernaum, come back and keep doing that. Come back and keep enjoying that great success that you've seen. And then in verse 38, Jesus shows an understanding and a resolve that result from his encounter with God in prayer. He declares, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Jesus not only confirms that his God-given mission is to preach, he now also insists that God is calling him to proclaim the good news beyond Capernaum in other places. So the allure of success and popularity don't hold Jesus back from obeying the will of his Father. And Jesus' final comment is literally, for this reason, I have come out. This shows Jesus' determination to preach the good news elsewhere and his understanding that God had called him to that ministry. So Jesus' prayer has helped him discern God's will and strengthened his commitment to obey it, both in terms of this particular situation in Capernaum and also in terms of his overall mission. And this prayer in chapter 1 then sets the stage for his whole ministry in Galilee in chapters 1 to 6. And then at the end of that ministry in Galilee, he comes to another crucial moment of testing. This is after the feeding of the 5,000. So we're now in chapter 6, verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. 
This is Mark's second example of Jesus at prayer. Mark tells us in verses 31 and 32 that Jesus and his disciples are again in a wilderness place. And again, the wilderness is the place of encounter with God as well as of testing. And Jesus has just seen the unjust and brutal murder of John the Baptist earlier in chapter 6. And Jesus knows that, that the same will happen to him if he continues on the path that he's on. It was John's faithfulness to his calling that led to his death. And Jesus knows that John is Jesus' forerunner. And from Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees and the Herodians have been plotting to kill Jesus. So I'm sure that all of that is weighing heavily on Jesus. And I think this is why Jesus immediately, it's quite, it's quite remarkable, immediately sends the disciples off on the boat to Bethsaida, dismisses the crowd and then goes up <coughs> on a mountain to pray. The wilderness is symbolic in Mark's gospel, so is the mountain. The mountain is also the place of special encounter with God. Think of Moses in Exodus 19 or Elijah in 1 Kings 19. Mark doesn't tell us the content of Jesus' prayer here, but his subsequent words and actions make clear that he has decided to continue the path to Jerusalem where he knows that he will suffer and die. And from now on, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. I think Jesus' resolute determination to obey God is the fruit of his sustained prayer on the mountain. Actually, he prayed to the fourth watch to 3 a.m. in the morning. The next example of Jesus at prayer is Mark, in Mark's Gospel is the Garden of Gethsemane in chapter 14, verse 32. This is the night before Jesus' death. Jesus is on another mountain praying, this time the Mount of Olives. Jesus has been resolute in his journey to Jerusalem. Now Mark portrays Jesus' fear and distress as the hour draws near. He tells Peter, James and John in verse 34, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Here Jesus uses the words, of Psalm 42 and 43, these are lament psalms. Lament psalms express disillusionment, fear, a sense of abandonment by the people of faith when they're suffering. Just as important, lament psalms in the Old Testament express the sufferer's faith and trust in God that God will bring deliverance in the midst of affliction. And some lament psalms actually end in thanksgiving to God in anticipation of God answering their prayer for deliverance. And Jesus is praying in a way that draws from these lament psalms, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And these lament psalms help us interpret Jesus' words and actions in Gethsemane and also his final prayer on the cross. Jesus' posture 
during his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, is falling prostrate on the ground, lying down on his face, is an expression of his deep reverence for God and also his desperate plea uh, for help. Now, we're not told whether Jesus experiences God's presence and comfort during his prayer, but four things happen. Firstly, he addresses God as Abba, Father. (coughs) And Mark is the only gospel that records the Aramaic term Abba here. So Jesus expresses his intimacy uh, with God and his love for God, the one who loves him as his beloved son. Secondly, Jesus reveres and praises the Father by saying everything is possible for you. Jesus is aware that God's power holds and sustains his life and that all life is in God's hands. So this is an expression of Jesus' obedient trusting. Everything, Father, is possible for you. Thirdly, Jesus asked God to remove the cup of suffering from him. This doesn't mean Jesus isn't willing to submit obediently to the Father's will, but this is expressing Jesus' horror in the face of the coming suffering of the crucifixion and Jesus pleading that God would provide another way. Actually, his intimate relationship with his Abba Father allows Jesus to be brutally honest with his Father. And this is like the psalmists who cry out in desperation for God to deliver them. So thirdly, he asks that the cup of suffering be removed. And then fourthly, Jesus prays, yet not what I will, but what you will. Despite his fear in the face of suffering, Jesus now commits himself wholeheartedly to carry out God's will. And this taps into the deepest current of Jesus' prayer life. Uh, We've seen that in the prayers in chapter 1 and in chapter 6, where Jesus emerged with this new resolve to follow the will of God for him as the beloved son. And here he immediately entrusts his life and his future into the hands of the one he lovingly calls his Abba. And I think Jesus' determination is the result of experiencing God's presence and comfort as he prays. The passage ends with Jesus returning to his disciples, declaring, verse 42, Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. This is quite a transformation, isn't it? From lying prostrate in desperation to now resolutely taking charge. And the phrase, let us go, is the same phrase that Jesus used when he rose from prayer in chapter 1, when he declared his commitment to God's call on him to proclaim the gospel elsewhere. And Mark is showing us 
that Jesus gains strength and clarity through his intimate prayer with his Father. And then Jesus' final prayer comes after he's endured the agony of crucifixion for six hours. In Mark chapter 15, verse 34, Jesus prays the opening line of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words convey Jesus' heart-wrenching pain and agony and feelings of discouragement as he hung dying on the cross. But we can't reduce his cry to expressing only his despair. Psalm 22 is another psalm of lament. This particular psalm, Psalm 22, alternates between, on the one hand, the psalmist's cry of disillusionment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To, on the other hand, um, declaring expressions of hope and trust in God's deliverance. Psalm 22 also culminates with an extended thanksgiving to God for that deliverance. And I think in quoting the first line of Psalm 22, Jesus is quoting or referring to or meaning the whole of Psalm 22, which was just how the Jews did it. The first line meant the whole thing. And so what Jesus prayed at Gethsemane, he now prays on the cross. He expresses his absolute terror and pain and yet at the same time he expresses his trust in God to vindicate his faithfulness in carrying out God's will. And Mark, Mark's narrative goes on to show that God did indeed respond to Jesus' self-offering. Immediately following Jesus' death, Mark reports that the curtain in the temple was rent apart so God's mercy and forgiveness of sins are now mediated through the cross, through Jesus' self-offering in love and obedience to God. And then as the women go to the tomb on the third day, Mark says the large stone that sealed off the tomb was rolled back and a heavenly messenger announces that Jesus has been raised from the dead. In all this, Mark uses passive verbs, was rent apart, was rolled back, has been raised. These indicate God's agency. It's known as the divine passive. God has vindicated Jesus' obedient self-offering by raising him from the dead to the fullness of life over which death can now have no power. And so the resurrection of Jesus, the Father's beloved Son, echoes the deliverance portrayed in Psalm 22. So bringing all of this together, Mark shows us that through Jesus' obedience to the will of his Father, even to the point of death, his Father has brought about a new creation, new life in the Spirit that will culminate in our resurrection from the dead. And Mark is saying that this happens 
This obedient suffering happened through Jesus' prayers. It's through prayer that Jesus goes from sorrow to follow, from struggle to resolve. It's through Jesus' prayer that he expresses his love for his Father, his confidence in his Father's power and his desire to be in his Father's will. And it's where Jesus comes before his Father with vulnerability and honesty, begging God for what he needs, bringing his requests before God, asking that if there could be any other way that God would provide that. So this is what is happening in Jesus' prayers. These are the elements. And it's through that that Jesus receives comfort, a sense of God's presence, clarity about what he is to do, and strength to do it, and the conviction to do it. And it's through Jesus' prayers to his Abba Father that he knows that he is not alone. And so what are the implications of this prayer life of Jesus for us? For believers today who exist in this new creation, how do we pray? We're called to follow Jesus and that means modelling our prayers on his prayers. Which means we're to pray, not my will, but yours be done. That is the essence of our prayers, just as it was the essence of Jesus' prayers. Not my will, but yours be done. But as we see with Jesus, and as I've experienced in my own life, this is a process. It's as we pray over time. And here we see Jesus praying at four different times in his three-year ministry. It's as we pray over time that our understanding and our hearts begin to align <laughs> with God's will. <clears throat> and we want his will above all else. It's over time as we pray that clarity comes, that our love for God grows, that we become more, become more and more aware of his presence, that our intimacy with him develops, um, and therefore our sense of his help and his presence with us. And out of that comes our desire to obey and our strength to obey. But it happens over time as we pray. How does this work? How does it happen that as we pray, our wills and our hearts begin to align with God's will so that we are strengthened and so that we are resolved in our, our obedience of God? Well, when we put our faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. This immediately causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. 
and a new communion and intimacy with God is born in our lives. And so now, instead of just saying our prayers, we now pray to a God who has made himself known to us as our Father. This is the reality of our new life in God. He speaks and we listen. And then we speak and he listens to us as our Father. This is the wonder of being in the new creation. And so with that awareness of God our Father, that he is listening, we begin to pray. And at first we're confused by some of Jesus' statements about prayer, I think. And certainly this was my experience in my journey uh, from being a younger Christian until now. At first we're confused by how Jesus talks about prayer. Like what he says in Mark chapter 11, 23 to 24 that we looked at last week. <clears throat> where Jesus says, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. Last week I tried to explain the context of this statement by Jesus. But when we're newly Christian, we read a text like this where Jesus is encouraging us to pray to our Father and to boldly come and bring all of our requests to our Father and encouraging us that our Father wants to hear us and wants to give us what we are asking. Um, and, and we read these passages, but Jesus is using such extravagant language. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it and it will be yours. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. And what father gives his son a snake when he asks for a loaf of bread? And how much more does your father in heaven want to give you good gifts? All these statements by Jesus we read as, as, we, you know, as we begin our journey in prayer as new Christians. And these are all encouragements to us to pray. And Jesus doesn't qualify them and say, yeah, whatever you ask in prayer, he just says, Whatever you ask in prayer, it's going to be given to you. So pray. Go for it. And I think we need to hear Jesus' heart and Jesus' encouragement. But we also need to realise that as Jesus so often does in the Gospels, he states a great truth in a very strong way. <laughs> And leaves us to find out what the qualifications are and what this really means through experience. And yes, he does give those qualifications elsewhere in his teaching and, of course, they exist elsewhere in the New Testament. But I think what is the heart and soul of Jesus' teaching on prayer is this encouragement to pray 
say to this mountain, go jump into the sea, and it will, if you believe. And I remember as a younger Christian being very excited by these statements of Jesus. And verses like James 4 verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask and you will receive. And so I started asking for everything and anything that I wanted. I'd take it to God. I'd ask him about all things, any difficulty, every problem, every little crisis. And praise God he answered. And this is how it starts for so many of us. God encourages us to begin to pray. But soon, as we are praying, we learn through experience what we couldn't really learn any other way. (laughs) I found out through experience that God is not a slot machine that automatically delivers what I ask. I found out that no is an answer. And I was greatly comforted to discover that. And over the years I found out that God regularly answers certain types of prayer and he doesn't answer certain types of other prayers. Like he doesn't answer my selfish prayers. So it's, it's not quite true that whatever we ask for in prayer, it'll be given to us. But he does answer my kingdom prayers. This is just my experience, that I've prayed so many things that he hasn't given me, but then when I ask these other kinds of things that line up with his will, the kinds of prayers that the Apostle Paul prays for, (laughs) he answers them. He gives me what I ask. And it's quite remarkable. And I'm learning this as I'm praying. I'm learning what kinds of prayers he answers, what kinds of prayers he doesn't. And I'm growing in in my understanding, in my discernment of the will of God and of the love of God for me through that process of praying, getting no's and yes's. And I've, I've, I've realized that if I pray for boldness to share the gospel, I'm given it. If I pray for gospel opportunities, I'm given it. If I pray for the Spirit to speak through my preaching, I'm given it. Uh, If I pray for other Christians to grow in their spiritual wisdom and understanding, God gives that richly. Uh, And I notice that God keeps answering those kinds of prayers. If I pray for the core needs that I have, he grants it. If I pray for love for my wife, he gives it to me generously. If I pray for strength to do what I know he wants me to do, he gives me that strength. And I found that if I pray for those things, they happen. And if I don't pray for those things, they don't happen as much. Again, this is just what I'm learning through the experience of praying over uh, 50, 60 years. And I found that as I prayed, what I prayed for therefore changed over time as I discerned what God was interested in answering and what he wasn't. And I found that what I wanted also changed. That my desires 
started to line up with his desires as I prayed. And as I prayed, I understood more and more of God and slowly I was kind of almost automatically praying prayers after the will of God. And I began to want what God wanted above all else. I began to see that what God wanted for me was better than what I wanted for me. Do you see how prayer is this dynamic where our hearts and our wills are aligned with God's heart and his will? And we know him, we're excited to see his fatherly care in the actuality of his answers to us. And this happens as we also study the scriptures, but of course we're praying as we study the scriptures, that God will open our eyes to what the scriptures mean. And I found that I discovered many things as I prayed. I discovered that prayer is not a magic formula, but prayer is incredibly powerful because God is incredibly powerful and he can answer our prayers. I discovered that prayer is not a program that makes me a little God who can order God around, and there will always be preachers and teachers who will promote that kind of an idea. Prayer is not a program for that. But prayer is incredibly powerful. Because God is incredibly powerful. And if we pray in line with his will, his kingdom will, his heart, his desires for us and for those around us, he answers those prayers. And as I've prayed, I've found that prayer is a great mystery. It's a mystery that God has so structured the world that he acts on the prayers of his children. Think about it. Does this mean that when I pray, it changes what God will do? Yes. I believe that. I've experienced that. So does God actually change, does prayer actually change God? Many people say prayer only changes us. But I believe prayer also affects how God deals with us. And through God answering our prayers, the circumstances around us change. Even across the world where I will never be present personally. So yes, prayer changes how God deals with us and with others. It's the mystery of God doing something different than he would have done in response to our prayers. And you see how important that is to understand that, to know that he really is our father, that he really does hear us and answer our prayers. And that can only fuel our love for him, our desire for his will that I'm not just a loop in his program, but I'm his child asking him for things and he responds in real terms. His heart is moved by my prayers. And so it's as I experience that, that whole reality, that prayer is powerful. God changes and responds to my prayers and yet 
that only happens in the slipstream of the Spirit, in the, in the kingdom of God, in the name of Jesus. It only happens as I abide in Jesus and his words. It's in that whole reality of what God wants. And I get caught up in that as I'm praying. And I'm motivated by that. And I want to pray more. And the more I pray, the more I want to pray. And see God at work. And you see, all I'm saying here is that prayer is dynamic. Prayer changes us. Prayer brings us into a whole different level of intimacy with our Father. Um, Some of the prayers that I am touched by are the way Paul prays for the churches. Um, And he obviously thinks that his prayers will make a difference and so he keeps praying. I'm struck by the fact that Paul asks others to pray for him. Uh, Paul believed that even with his call from God and the indwelling Holy Spirit and his knowledge of the gospel and his special visions, despite all of that, Paul knew that without people praying for him, his ministry simply wouldn't happen. So again, prayer is real. Prayer matters. Our Father hears us. He responds. That's so important in the mix of things that we learn as our hearts are changed to want to follow him. Prayer is powerful, but it's always not my will, but your will be done. And we discover and we understand and we come to know this God of intimacy and love. We come to hunger for his way and his kingdom in the world through our prayers. Amen. Do you want to, cut? just two quick questions if, if there are questions. Yeah. Yeah. Often specifically if you've seen God, or like seen that God is real. And so how would you what did that happen to Jesus or Paul? How would you pray for them or with them through that or it can be really sustained? I, I Anita, I missed the, the thing that uh, people were saying. Um Right. Yeah, they had prayers unanswered. Yeah, and we've got to remember that um, there are hindrances to prayer, and this is this is one thing we can say. Uh, James four three says you ask with the wrong motives. Uh, One Peter three seven talks about marital discord hindering our prayers. Uh, maybe it's unconfessed sin. Uh, so Psalm sixty six verse eighteen. And then in, of course, Matthew, uh, Mark eleven twenty five, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So another hindrance to our prayers and God answering our prayers is our unforgiveness. And all of these things are, are, are a lack of faith. 
And we must come to God in faith. That faith is crucial. A lack of abiding in Jesus and his words. A lack of praying in the spirit, in the slipstream of what the spirit is wanting. Um, and listening to the spirit. So, yeah, I think, I think so that might be a start to that conversation. Uh, why are prayers not happening? But the other thing is keep praying and start praying for those things that you know God wants for people. And my experience is that all of a sudden, suddenly, quite remarkably, those things start to happen. And then notice that when you don't pray those things, they don't happen or don't happen as much. And uh, I, I think that's just, just, just true to, true to experience. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So Paul's thorn in the flesh. So sometimes the answer will be no, and the answer to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, "Take this cup from me," was no. Right. So sometimes yes, the answer will be no. But then again, the answer was yes for Jesus because God did deliver him through the resurrection. Yeah. So sometimes our prayers aren't answered immediately but are in the longer term. Yeah. Okay. Thanks.